protect yourself against infection. Keep pencils and other things out of your mouth. Never take bites of other people's food. You see, what you think is a simple cold could really be the first symptoms of some other disease. Viruses, and there are many different kinds of them, can be scattered with each particle of saliva and mucus. Welcome to Cybercrimology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and a happy and prosperous new year to you all. A genuine congratulations are in order. We've made it to the next decade. However, despite the newscasters already turning the delicate and complex task of vaccine distribution into their latest scoreboard, we're likely far from even the pretense of normal. So what do we do in the meantime? What can we expect from 2021? I asked back Dr. Tom Holt, professor at Michigan State University, and Dr. Rutger Lufeld, senior researcher at NSCR, and also at the Hague University of Applied Sciences, to share their opinions, as well as asking Dr. Yiting Chua, research associate at the Cambridge Cybercrime Center, for some advice. To begin with, I asked Dr. Holt what we could think about researching this year. For the next year, I think there are some very specific things that we can focus in on as a research community. And the first of those would be how individuals are responding both as offenders and as victims to the way in which COVID schemes will change as a function of whether a vaccine is created or how lockdowns and behaviors have to change. Admittedly, right now in the United States, we're undergoing a period of massive, massive spikes in infections. And so we're bordering on the need for uh, states to find ways to shut down without necessarily having the same impact that they did early in the spring of 2020. So it's unclear how the community will respond to that. And by community, I mean locals on the ground in a given place, how they'll respond. To what extent are they going to use apps to organize? To what extent will those organized behaviors lead to physical violence? So thinking about that sort of technological mediation of offline behavior is important. And since there's great potential for a vaccine to be released or at least announced in full, in 2021, I'm expecting there to be a variety of different scams that crop up, whether it's about registering to get the vaccine, whether it's prepaying for vaccine access, whether it's dark web or even open web vendors claiming that they have doses available that you can take in your home without the need for doctor visits. I imagine there's going to be a pretty robust economy around COVID-related scams. And it'll be fascinating to see what the pulls are for victims to respond to them and the pushes are on the offender side to make them appear one way or another. I would also really like to see a lot of research from any type of scholar around the extent to which extremist groups, whether on the right or on the left, are adapting to the new environments and researchers taking an active role in assessing how communications evolve. So right now, um, especially again with that sort of United States focus, there's new platforms that are sucking up a lot of oxygen on the far right. So whether it's Parler or any other iteration of a sort of Twitter style social network, how are the communications on those platforms 
expressive or evocative of far-right ideas? And to what extent do they influence or promote offline violence? And then how do individuals who, for lack of a better term, radicalize in that environment, then move to other apps for communication? So whether it's going to the telegrams or uh, other forms of encrypted app to have direct engagement with organized far-right extremist groups and other entities. So thinking about the the influence, again, of technological mediation, but in this case, to radicalize and engage in violence, mostly in a physical space. So that's um, another issue of importance. The third is how we as criminologists want to think about the issue of misinformation and distinct disinformation. So historically, that's not really been an avenue of exploration for criminology as a field. We've focused more on traditional offending. But when you think about the impact of misinformation and the first passes of real engagement by the platforms themselves, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, now that they're getting a little more into the game of trying to block or at least diffuse information, how do we think about that as a policy that influences behavior? Because while disinformation may not be criminal, its broader impacts are destabilizing. And that influence on social behavior, whether it's being supportive of uh, certain far-right extremist groups, whether it's enabling violence, whatever the way we want to think about it is, to what extent can we as a discipline help provide information for policymakers and practitioners as a result of the ways that people are engaging in overt misinformation sharing as sort of the information producer? And then more broadly on the information consumer side, What's influencing uptake? How much do people think about what they're sharing? And how much engagement does a person need with that material to fully accept those ideas? It's interesting to think that we're now far enough into the information age that how we think about information and the importance of information seems to have changed a bit. Yeah, and there's a lot of academic research that talks about this sort of individual versus nation state divide. And as a field, there's a very small proportion of criminologists who take that sort of nation state crime or state crime perspective. So do we want to think about the practices of Russia or China or other nations that are overtly engaged in disinformation campaigns and, and misinformation campaigns? And do we want to think of those as state crimes? And if so, what does that mean for our appreciation for how we deal with them? So is the development of a of a policy by Facebook or another social media platform sufficient? There are now various government arms and entities, whether it's in the EU or the United States, that now play a role in trying to provide the accurate information to diffuse the disinformation campaigns. But it's hard to know how much uptake there is of those resources among the general public. So what are the ways that we can think about policy and practice to effectively hinder that as an action? I think that's an important issue of policing that we haven't necessarily moved toward. And it's very specific, but it is really important because it's it's something that you can observe, whether it's across the European Union, various parts of Asia, and now in the United States especially. 
This last year caused many conferences to be cancelled, some to be created, and others to be moved online. I asked Dr. Lukfeld what he thought might be in store for the next 12 months. It's going to be an interesting year. I mean, 2020 was already a very interesting year, of course. My best guess is that there won't be any big conferences, at least for the for the next year. Uh, we might have a few smaller ones. So especially for people that ha- do not have a big network yet, would use you know these conferences to not only listen to the presentations of the people you know, attending, but also to try to get into contact with some of the scholars that they might read, you know, lots of lots of studies from. I think it's it's going to be not a very, uh, very good year. I mean, there will be lots of conferences that are going online. So there will be lots of talks to listen to. But personally, I always find that meeting people in the corridors of these conferences and, you know, going and have drinks with them and socialize with them brings much more uh, new ideas, new contacts and stuff like that. And I'm afraid that that's not going to happen uh, next year. So, you know, just from, from the perspective of, okay, so am I able to get the latest knowledge? Am I able to listen to the latest talks? I don't think that's going to be a problem at all. I think there will be many, many more conferences maybe, just because people don't have to travel and it's easier to get together online. But I do think that, you know, the social aspect is going to be much more difficult. And I'm really sorry for the the starting scholars that now do not have the experience or the the possibility to, you know, to actually talk to uh, the people that they look up to. Because that's, that's the fun thing about conferences, right? That if you go there and make sure that you make a list of people that you want to talk to and just try to get their attention. And usually you end up having a very good conversation because most of the scholars that I know tend to be very open and friendly, especially to to new starting scholars. Um, so I don't, I don't really have good news in that area, I guess. I think it's going to take at least another year before we're going back to something that we can slightly call normal. But I sure hope that we're going to find different ways to make sure that young people or people that are still looking for the directions of their PhDs or whatever, that we that we find new ways to uh, make sure that you know they can get into contact with with people that they want. I, I don't have the answer, but I definitely see a need there. So uh, I, I'm hoping that we're going to move towards much smaller conferences that are online with a, a number of you know, selected speakers, and then invite a number of young scholars that then get the opportunity to interact with this uh, very small group of uh, of scholars. You know that we organized uh, the annual conference on the human factor uh, a couple of times now. And we did that because we were not convinced that these big meetings like the ASC or the ESC were contributing to forming the cybercrime community because they were just too big. There were too many people. And that's why we ended up organizing a very small conferences with invited people only, uh, only submitting full papers. And I can definitely see that something like that could also work for getting more young scholars involved. I see us going to more conferences that are not as big as we used to. And we might be able to make sure that we um, get some special attention for attracting uh, the new generation of scholars. To give one addition, 
I remember the security revolution, which you founded, started a couple of years ago as one of the first, you know, at least that I knew, one of the first uh, online conferences. And I saw that everybody was struggling and some, some people, they said, well, I, I don't want to do this. I want to do this in real life. And I do see that, you know, just because we have to this year, we, we have to go online, that most of the scholars, even the, let's say, the slightly older ones, are now inclined to say, okay, this could also work, you know, presenting online. So this also gives maybe lots of opportunities in the future to to host more of these sessions. And they don't have to be big. They can be much smaller, but it doesn't cost you that much time if you know how these online tools work. If you have a presentation, you know, you can definitely uh, get more involved into these conferences. So I also see an upside of the entire corona period that we might, I, I, I assume we're, in the future, we're going to still have these physical conferences that are big, but I also think that we will have much more online small conferences that are maybe just as good as some of the big conferences. And of course, the best thing is to meet each other in person and have some beers or drink and have a chat. But, you know, this is something uh, we're not going to see next year, I guess. Now I'm going to do something that I don't really do as a rule, and I'm going to share my thoughts with you. This is your podcast, so I politely ask that you indulge me for just a few moments. 2020 has been a hell of a year. We've all suffered some cracks. Kintsugi is the Japanese art of repairing ceramics by fusing the broken pieces and filling the gaps with fine gold. The repaired object is more interesting and more beautiful because of the care put into the repair, rather than in spite of it. The events that make life leave their little marks. The patina left behind is important. We are improved, provided we take care in our repair. We might have all cracked a little over the last year, but if we take the time and care to heal well, we'll be all the better for it. So in that spirit, I'd like to admire the scuff marks that the year has left a little and think of the repairs that we could make. You know, this time last year, I was looking forward to 2020. I had planned out the conferences I wanted to go to. I'd ordered the equipment I needed so that I could start doing some interviews out in the field. That did not happen. Instead, March happened. Priorities shifted. I quite honestly cannot remember April. The defining and perhaps most terrifying aspect of a pandemic still has a touch of silver to its lining. The pandemic is everywhere. The whole world is affected by it. it cannot be ignored. We have suffered together as a humanity. The effort for developing vaccines is a testament to that. We have had to stand together. I think perhaps everyone's priorities have shifted. Even for those like myself who were privileged enough to be able to work from home and maintain an income from relative safety. The health and well-being of ourselves, our friends, family, colleagues, community have become central to the minutiae of everyday lives. We've become concerned about mental health. The question of, how are you, is no longer a formality, but an extension of genuine concern. Again, I mention this because I see it as important to make a personal note of what those priorities are, because they will be important in negotiating the next decade. The Roaring Twenties are nearly upon us once again. The technological advancement will not be in cars, films, radio and television. It'll be online. It'll be artificially intelligent. Ensuring that our concern for others is not overlooked in the hustle will require that we are firm with our priorities. The nature of work 
in what it is, where it is, when it occurs, how it occurs, how it should be managed, stands to be challenged. The notion of time as a proxy for value, as helpful as it might have been in a factory, does little in a creative economy. I'm hopeful that antiquated ideas are seen as such. The phrase work-life balance suggests that they occur at the opposite ends of something. We can also enjoyably challenge the ritual of our work. Why do we go to conferences? Why do we do presentations in the way we do? What is the point of PowerPoint? I find this quite exciting. I think of the early radio shows and cinema, discovering how they could move beyond the established traditions of the theatre, and on to telling more compelling and more engaging stories. What are the traditions that we will move beyond so that we can communicate more effectively on the small screen? If the mass adoption of the printing press brought us the scientific journal, what will the video camera in our pocket provide? Alternatively, we should also recognise the reality of our physical and corporeal existence. What is it that we must do in the presence of others in order to realise benefit? How much of the labour of our work can we automate? And what work is both the means and the end? So I'm glad to have had the opportunity to chat with our guests today about such things. To consider that the growing tug of war for the hearts and minds will inevitably lead to new forms of war crime. To know that we need to open ourselves to meeting people online. To trust enough to mentor and build a community. And considering that, I would like to thank all of the guests whom appeared on the show in 2020. Most of whom I've never met in person. For all, taking the time to talk to a stranger. To share their wisdom, their work and themselves for the benefit of others. And in turn, I'll remind you that you can always reach out to me at, at Cybercrimeology on Twitter and ask you to please take a breath before diving into the next decade. Doing nothing is a valuable activity. Good ideas are quite polite. They tend not to compete with a busy schedule. And finally, I'd like to leave you with some wise words from Dr. Yi Ting Chua from the Cambridge Cybercrime Centre, who we'll meet in an upcoming episode. I think she summed up a great way to approach the new year. Humans are very good at adapting to very extreme circumstances. And I think this, this year has proved to be the case where we, we are able to adapt, if needed, very quickly. So next year, I would say the best way forward is to keep going at what you're doing. Acknowledge the fact that we may not be able to return to normal, so to speak. We might actually have to reestablish a new norm. And we have to accept that might be the case and continue moving forward.